With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 285. It's titled, Money is Debt. Last month, when LaPrell and I were in Mexico City, we decided to order a wood-fired pizza. Carry out. When I went to pay for the pizza, I handed the server a 500 peso note. He looked at it briefly and said, I can't take this note. It's counterfeit. I got this 500 peso note from an ATM machine from the bank, and yet it was counterfeit. The best counterfeit notes in the world come from Peru. In 2016, Peter Holly of the Washington Post interviewed Jose. He's a U.S. Secret Service agent who leads the crackdown on counterfeiters in Peru. Jose said, A lot of these organizations are family-run. Making a counterfeit note is a skill that's been passed down. It's an art, and the skill isn't easily transferable. He mentioned that it takes 10 to 12 people to create a note. Financiers, designers, printers, cutters, and the artists who recreate watermarks and raise textures so that the notes appear quite real. He said they're very good at creating texture on the note, which makes it passable not just in the U.S. economy, but also in South America and abroad. A $100 note can be sold for $20. Cost for materials and laborers is 3 to $5. And most of these notes are smuggled into the U.S. from Mexico. And then they might be spent at a big box retailer. Jose said most big retails have relaxed return policies, and the individual will return their items and get cash back, making a 90% profit. And these counterfeiters, once they get the notes, they might hit 14 stores across seven states in one day. He points out it's very organized. But that's as far as it gets, because most banks have counting machines that can separate out fake bills from authentic ones because there's a a magnetic ink on the legitimate currency. As a result, only a very small percent of U.S. dollars are counterfeit, less than 0.01%. Banknotes, such as the 500 peso bill, are issued by central banks. Pesos by the Bank of Mexico, dollar bills by the Federal Reserve. And these banknotes are perpetual, non-interest-bearing debt of these central banks. They are fungible, which means you can interchange one dollar bill with another one. We don't spend the time to think about whether the bill is counterfeit or not. Now, in Mexico, they're a little more careful. On our trip, I gave a peso banknote to a taxi driver 
And he handed it back to me and said, I won't take this because it's ripped. It had a little bit of a tear in it. But in the U.S., if there's a little bit of a tear, we'll, we'll just continue to use the note. In fact, I remember when I was small, you would often see Canadian pennies. And we just use them when a penny was worth something. You just, they were used interchangeably with U.S. pennies to buy candy or whatever. Academics Trevi Dong, Gary Gorton, and Bengt Holmstrom wrote a paper titled Ignorance, Debt, and the Financial Crisis. And they mention that with debt, short-term debt, or even perpetual debt like cash, that the approach is no questions asked. That we don't really stop to think whether a note is counterfeit or not. We just use it. Nor do we consider whether the Federal Reserve will honor that dollar, which is a liability of the Federal Reserve. We just go about our trading activity, buying and selling things, using cash, currency, and coin, and don't really think about or consider whether it's real or not. This no-questions-asked approach to trading debt is very common. Episode 270 was on repurchase agreements. A repurchase agreement is when one entity sells a security or securities, usually government bonds, to another entity usually overnight, but sometimes longer, and then promises to buy that security back, usually the next day at a higher price. The seller gets cash, and the buyer gets collateral that secures the repurchase agreement. The buyer of the securities essentially earns interest, which is effectively the difference between what was sold and what was bought back. Now, the collateral is usually a debt instrument a U.S. Treasury security or bond. The volume of repurchase agreements is staggering. And it works because most of the time, the traders don't question the value of the underlying collateral, the Treasury bonds or some other security. If there's doubt about that collateral, they might want additional collateral or they might choose not to trade at all. In some circumstances, they might want a higher interest rate, which effectively means they want a bigger discount for that collateral because they're buying the asset and then returning it. It's that difference between what it was bought and sold for. That's the interest rate. So it could be what's known as a haircut, a bigger discount. Some of the biggest players in repurchase agreements are money market mutual funds. These are funds that invest in high-quality short-term debt instruments. They buy treasury notes. They buy repurchase agreements and then take treasuries as collateral. They buy commercial paper, which is unsecured debt issued by companies. A money market mutual fund seeks to keep its net asset value or its value per share at a dollar. And we think of money market funds almost like a bank account, a checking account. It's a cash equivalent. In fact, you can write checks on money market accounts. They issue a little checkbook. And our approach is also no questions asked. We typically don't spend time conducting due diligence on what money markets mutual funds hold. 
For example, the Vanguard Prime Money Market Fund has 391 holdings, over $100 billion in assets. If you invest in that fund, have you ever considered what they own? They only have about 2.5% in repurchase agreements, 5% in commercial paper, about 28% in U.S. Treasury bills, and almost half in foreign issues, many of which are dollar-denominated. But we don't consider, well, what happens if the money market fund isn't able to get their money back or sell it, or the price of what they hold falls? It's a no-questions-asked approach, except when there's a crisis. In September 2008, the Primary Reserve Money Market Mutual Fund owned Lehman Brothers commercial paper. And Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. And the Reserve Fund realized that its assets were no longer worth a dollar per share. They were worth closer to 96 or 97 cents. And they marked it at that price. They did what's known as breaking the buck reducing the net asset value below a dollar. And there was a run on the fund. It lost two-thirds of its assets overnight. The U.S. Treasury, in conjunction with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, initiated the Temporary Guarantee Program to guarantee that money market mutual fund investors would be able to sell their shares for a dollar. The net asset value would be a dollar. They guaranteed the funds, just like the FDIC guarantees deposits at banks. Now, that temporary guarantee expired in 2010. When we put money in the bank, when you open a savings account or a checking account, we're not looking to see what's backing that liability. It's our asset, but it's the bank's liability. It's a demand deposit. We can take it out anytime we want. It's backed by assets of the banks, which are primarily loans. And those loans are assets of the bank, but their liabilities are those that borrow the money. And the point is, many of our assets, especially cash and cash equivalents, checking accounts, money market mutual fund deposits, treasury notes, currencies, it's all debt, most of it short-term debt. Gary Gorton of Yale in a paper titled The Regulation of Private Money, wrote, what is the problem with short-term debt? He writes, it's difficult to engage in transactions or store value when the price of a claim fluctuates and parties are differently informed about the value of the claim. What he means is, if this short-term debt that we own in the form of checking account deposits, money market mutual funds, even currency, if it fluctuates, in value all the time, that injects uncertainty into the system. And if we believe somebody else has informational insight as to the true value of those liabilities, then that could worry us and we might feel like we're going to be taken advantage of. Gorton writes, users of short-term debt should not have to worry about losing to insiders when transacting. And he suggests that the best way to ensure that an asset that really is short-term debt maintains its value or its price is two things. Back it by other debt and don't ask a lot of questions. 
In other words, the cost of figuring out what the underlying assets are worth just not worth the time. Example is a repurchase agreement. If treasury bonds are used as collateral for a repurchase agreement and it's an overnight loan, participants don't spend a lot of time figuring out whether that treasury note is worth what it's worth. They just assume it is. Or when we invest in a money market mutual fund, we assume that the sponsor is valuing the assets correctly and that they're worth what they're worth and that the share price will stay at $1 and that will earn interest. Same for a checking account. It's debt. That deposit is debt of the bank, which in turn is backed by loans, which are debt of the borrowers. Debt backed by debt. Even banks, we have comfort investing in banks because there's deposit insurance. But if you look at the balance sheet of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, what are its assets? 93% of its assets that are backing this insurance fund are U.S. Treasury securities, which is government debt. So we have debt of the government backing the deposit insurance corporation, which is turn is owned by the government. Gorton writes, Debt on debt is optimally information insensitive, which means it is liquid. Information insensitive means that it is common knowledge that no agent finds it optimal to produce costly private information about the fundamentals behind the debt. Just not worth doing the research to figure out that, well, maybe the underlying collateral isn't worth what people think it's worth. But when that doubt creeps up, just like during the financial crisis, when investors and participants began to believe that maybe the collateral wasn't worth what they thought it was, then people don't want to participate. They, they sell their assets. They want to get out. In episode 11, we looked at this, where you had Wall Street banks such as Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch. They were funding most of their day-to-day operations using repurchase agreements. And when housing prices began to fall and securities linked to those home mortgages, institutional investors, money market funds, invested in those repo agreements, began to worry about the credit, the exposure that these Wall Street banks had to these mortgage-linked securities. And so then they didn't want to renew. They decided not to trade with those Wall Street banks, and several of them collapsed. And in the midst of it, the Wall Street banks are selling everything they can in order to raise money to meet their ongoing operations. In episode 155, we talked about the close to $2 trillion of commercial paper that was outstanding in 2007. And more than half of it was what was known as asset-backed commercial paper. It was short-term debt issued by special purpose conduits that took the money and invested in longer-term bonds, mortgage-backed securities, essentially. So you had debt backed by debt. You had commercial paper backed by mortgage-backed securities, which were bonds tied to mortgages, many of them subprime, of 
home purchasers. Debt backed by debt backed by debt. When there was doubt about the value of the homes that were linked to the mortgage-backed securities and the ability to get repaid, then investors did not want to renew their commercial paper, and there was a run. Gorton writes, The reality and tragedy is that we have not been able to deliberately design successful bank regulation that delivers long periods of quiet. Crises happen. There are runs on banks, on repos, on commercial paper, and it leads to what is known as a sudden stop. If you don't know if you're going to get paid and you just have a short-term debt, say a checking account, a money market mutual fund, or you, you participate in the repo market, then you just don't participate anymore. And that causes repercussions for those that were dependent on that day-to-day ability to borrow to fund their operations. And then assets are sold, prices collapse, and oftentimes the federal government, the central bank, has to step in as a lender and guarantor of last resort. Let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, what I find fascinating about the current environment is that the biggest issuer of collateral used in these repurchase agreements and backing such a high volume of assets is U.S. Treasury bonds. The issuance is huge. The U.S. Treasury just announced they were going to start issuing 20-year bonds because the government 
the U.S. Treasury issues bonds in the amount of that year's budget deficit, the issuance is increasing. The budget deficit, the amount of spending less tax revenue, was 13% of the economy at the beginning of the Obama administration. It got down to 4%. Today, it's back up to 5.5%. And that's because government spending is up and tax revenues, because of the tax cut of 2017, haven't kept up with that. 5.5%. The U.S. runs the largest budget deficit in the world. And as a percent of the economy, it's also one of the largest of any rich country in the world. Yet the yield on 10-year treasuries are below 2%, which means interest repayments as a share of GDP are only about half of the level they were in the early 90s, according to The Economist newspaper. So even though the, de- even though the government is issuing more and more debt, investors want more and more of these safe assets. Commercial banks want to hold them because it's tier one. It's the highest tier of capital that they can hold on their balance sheet and not have to reserve against. Domestic investors in the U.S. have bought two-thirds of the government borrowing, the additional government debt issued in the U.S. since 2016. Foreigners have bought $800 billion worth, a third. And that's because there's a lack of this supposedly safe collateral. Germany is running close to a balanced budget, which means they're not issuing German government bonds. The supply of Japanese debt is not increasing significantly because the Japanese central bank has bought so much of it as part of its quantitative easing. So the U.S. government continues to issue more and more debt. Investors are buying that debt. Rates are staying low. But will it continue? Will there be a sudden stop, a run on the bank, someday if investors start to doubt the value of the collateral? And what would happen if that occurred? There's a report just this week in the Wall Street Journal, article written by Nick Timorayos, titled, Fed Officials Weigh New Recession-Fighting Tool, Capping Treasury Yields. Author points out that the U.S. Treasury capped yields, what they were willing to pay for interest on government bonds from 1942 until 1951. The Bank of Japan is effectively doing the same thing, holding the government bond yields, the yielding 10-year government bonds in Japan to zero by committing to buying as many securities as they need to keep that rate at zero. The Federal Reserve is considering doing the same thing. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell recently said, short-term yield curve control is something that is worth looking at. Yield curve control, that means controlling interest rates by committing to buying treasury bonds to ensure that the yield doesn't go above a certain level. Some Academics and economists believe that doing this would actually result in the Federal Reserve having to own less bonds than they would buying bonds as part of quantitative easing. But it takes belief on the part of market participants that the Fed could accomplish this. 
Now, we know they have the money to do it because they create the money out of thin air, as we've learned in earlier episodes. And how can they create money out of thin air? Well, that's what money is. Federal Reserve notes, liabilities of the Federal Reserve, perpetual, non-interest bearing. And the Fed created commercial bank reserves, another form of money. Now, they pay interest on that, but they can create as much as they want in order to buy outstanding treasury bonds. There's risk to this strategy. If market participants begin to doubt the ability of the Federal Reserve to enforce the yield cap or doubt the central bank's ability just to operate, begin to doubt the integrity of it, then yields could spike, potentially longer-term yields. Inflation could spike. There could be a bank run, not only on banks, but on the treasury itself. People want to sell their bonds that they have. And this could happen if, as the author points out, if market participants start to believe that the Fed's going to end the cap. And so they want to get out beforehand, potentially. Definitely some risk with this strategy. So what do we do? Well, we can't not use money. And we like to earn a little bit of interest. So we have to recognize that much of our assets is really liabilities of other entities. And those liabilities, including guarantees by the FDIC, it's debt backed by debt, backed by debt. Can't get away from that in the modern financial system. But what we can do is make sure that we actually own some assets that are clear of debt. Own some property, some land. Own it clear without a mortgage. Own some gold. Live frugally. Stay out of debt so that you have flexibility in case a crisis ensued and your income gets cut so you can meet your living expenses. Sometimes the monetary system makes my head spin. Yet it's, it's endlessly fascinating how all these things interlink. And it's always evolving, which is why it's so difficult for regulators to stay on top of these things. You get these shadow banks that are lending and creating securities. Debt backed by debt backed by debt. And you have other entities that are funding their daily operations with those securities. And there's always a risk of a sudden stop and a bank run. And we need to be positioned to protect ourselves from that by having non-paper assets not tied to the financial system. Own something real that maintains its value. That's episode 285. You can get show notes, the links to the articles I referenced in today's episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll email you those links each week along with an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just to your inbox every Wednesday when I release the episode. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. 
Have a great week.